Much of the U.S. is buried under snow and ice, leaving many dreaming of spring. For some, that means of dreaming of the crack of a ball on a bat or the taste of peanuts in a ballpark. With the spring thaw comes baseball season and with it the inevitable number crunching associated with the sport. Data and baseball is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is panelist John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department. Richard Campbell is away today. Our guest is Christopher Phillips. Phillips is an historian of science at Carnegie Mellon University. He's the author of Scouting and Scoring, How We Know What We Know About Baseball, and The New Math, A Political History. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Time.com, New England Journal of Medicine, Science, and Nature. Phillips is also the general editor of the Encyclopedia of the History of Science and associate editor for the Harvard Data Science Review. Chris, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Your book, Scouting and Scoring, looks at the history of the use of of data, numerical analysis in baseball. Why did you feel compelled to write that book? Well, I think for many of us, baseball has become kind of the paradigmatic example of a new way of knowing, that is to say, a kind of data-based way of knowing, taking over from the way things used to be done, which, uh, of course, the new folks think is superstitious or religious in nature. And and so we, we think of these as two very different cases. But what I was really interested in is that when I started looking at baseball, it seems like the folks who did it the old way actually had a lot in common with the people who did it the new way. That is to say, they tried to reduce things to numbers, they tried to make reliable inferences on the basis of data. They tried to think carefully about what would be good predictors of the future. And so part of what I was just interested in is why do we think of these as two really different ways of knowing? And actually, what do they look like on the ground when you're trying to predict who's going to be a great baseball player? I, I liked how you framed it in your in your writing as scouting versus scoring. You know, can could you just define those for us and, and talk a little bit about why did you, you sort of glom on to those ideas? Exactly. So those are the, the two groups that are supposed to be enemies, right? The folks who come in <laughs> using the data, that is to say the scores who traditionally keep score. Many people might keep score in baseball games or be familiar with all the stats that are on the back of of uh, baseball cards or, you know, kind of that they are familiar with from fantasy leagues. And then scores are supposed to be the other end of the spectrum, right? These kind of almost always male old guys who sit in the stadium and they wear hats and they watch the game and then they chew cigars and they try and pick out which of the players are going to be successful in the future. And couldn't be different, right, these two groups. And so what I'm interested in are the ways in which they're different, but also the ways in which they're similar. You know, the, the kind of times that they're both trying to find reliable ways of taking past data and predicting the future on that basis. So can I just a quick follow up to that? I so I, I just was I was thinking back on all the times I, I used to do scoring at soccer games and and there was there was the subjective components, you know, because there was there were lobbying by players like I was sure I had an assist on that. You know, just the, the, the subjectivity, the components there that, that play out in, in terms of how you do scoring. 
I I hadn't really been thinking as much about it when, until I was reading your article and thinking about the the idea of errors versus hits and the the consequences of some of the subjectivity of it. So I I was wondering if you could just weigh in a little bit on on that aspect of of the subjectivity in the scoring process. Well, you know well from when you when you judge something to be uh, a, a kind of success for one player, it usually means somebody else screwed up, and so there's there's always this kind of zero sum nature to most sports scoring. Uh, and the way scoring in baseball was set up is that there, there's always it's uh, the credit to one team is a debit to the other. And so when you give a player a hit, what you're saying is that the player deserved to get to first base, right? You're saying that it wasn't a fault of the other team. But when you're giving a, a team an error, it's actually the player does not deserve to get on base. And so one of the interesting things about statistics is that it's kind of miraculous in baseball that we think of these things as objective at all. Because at the heart of almost all these judgment calls is a person who is watching the game and deciding who to give credit to. And then, of course, when they're aggregated and compiled and we analyze them, then we forget the origin of just the basic statistic. This is not a fancy statistic. It's basic. It's just a hit. Uh, but it comes from people. It comes from a judgment call. How do you, how do you get you know, the casual fan or, or someone who's interested in the sport to understand that? Because I do think there are moments where you know, people see these stats and they imagine that they are these things that sort of come out of the ether that frame what is good performance and what's not. And yet sort of forgetting all the subjective things that went into the construction of that. How do you commute that, communicate that to the guy who's showing up, you know, at Red Stadium on a, on a Friday to watch a game to understand like, you know, that's not as objective maybe as you might think it is. Well, I think there's, it went, when you watch a baseball game, there's a lot of time to chat, as you might know. And so one, one of the good things you can do is that you watch a play and you're like, how did that happen? You know, who, who's, who deserved to get credit for that? You know, so when a ball gets hit hard between two players, you can blame the pitcher. You can give a credit to the batter. You can blame the players for being out of position. And so a lot of these kind of informal conversations, one of the natural results of them is that you might keep score differently than the score. So when my wife and I go, we, we always debate, you know, whether things should be credited because she has very high standards and I have very low standards. And so, you know, I, I'm okay with people not playing very well. And she thinks, well, no, he should have definitely gotten that. And so I think sometimes it's just we're so familiar with separating out these numbers as if they have kind of been God-given in a certain way instead of really thinking about the fallible processes by which all data of any kind are made, but certainly baseball data. But I, I find in baseball, you just, you just start the conversation. It didn't look like he tried that hard, did he, on that one? <laughs> You talked a little bit about the idea that, that if you pushed back in time and talked about the people that were scouts or the scorers, that there were some similarities and differences that you, you know, could you could you talk a little bit about some of the similarities that, that came out that might surprise us, perhaps, and some of the differences that, that you saw? For sure. So one of the uh, similarities that I think surprises a lot of people is that the scouts actually, from the 1960s onward, would assign every skill a baseball player had a number. And then they'd average them together and add them up. And so you'd get an overall, what's called an overall future potential, an OFP. And so the reason why they did this was when you're drafting players in, in professional baseball, you have to draft players 
uh, every team gets a pick and you go through. And so you have to have a rank order list of everyone you're potentially interested in. And the easiest way to create a ranked list is to actually create a single number for each player. And so in scouting, of course, they might talk about it as this impressionistic thing. But in the end of the day, they put a number on every single player. And in fact, the, the fun thing I think about it is that they're in more audacious than the, the counters. You know, the baseball stats are mainly counting. But what they're doing is actually quantifying skill and then averaging it to an overall skill. And so one of the kind of ironic things is you could make the claim that actually uh, scouts are way more quantifying than baseball uh, <laughs> scores in a certain sense. I was telling some friends that I was going to do this, have this conversation, and they immediately went to Moneyball. And so my one colleague, if you can answer this, would like to know if now that everybody's money balling, if small market teams are going to be competitive. So if you can answer that, that would be great. But my question is, I think I think that the historization of, of the use of data in baseball is really interesting to me because I think that's a general response when people talk about data in baseball is to immediately go to Moneyball as though data had never been used in baseball before. So I want why why do you think is it just the popularity of Moneyball that has sort of framed that or is it just has the sport obscured the data somehow? Uh, that's uh, uh, there's a lot of lot going on there in that question. Yeah. So <laughs> so I so first of all, you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> actually as Moneyball has spread, small market teams are actually worse off. You know, the whole premise of Moneyball is that it's a it's a leveraging move. It's a, an arbitrage where if you have more information, you can actually beat the richer teams. But once everyone does the same thing, there's no advantage. So uh, in, in a funny way, it's actually ruined the effect. Uh, in terms of the book, though, so first I should say, Mike, Michael Lewis writing Moneyball, he tells a great story. And that's, that's the key thing, is that it's an amazing story. But the problem is that in order to make it an amazing story, you have to have a David figure and you have to have a Goliath figure. Yeah. And yeah. so there has to be a kind of overthrowing of the traditional ways of knowing. And so when I, when I first read the book, my first reaction was, first of all, these are not that separate of categories. And second of all, people have been doing this a very, very long time. And he, he acknowledges this quite clearly that it's not as if numbers are invented in 2003. It's just that better numbers are invented circa 2003. And so, you know, I think part of what I was trying to do as a historian and not say a front office executive or, or even uh, say a kind of baseball journalist tracking the latest thing, what I was interested in is where did these come from? Are these old? What's new if it's new? And, and I was just really interested in this long tradition in which baseball is the sport that quantifies. And there's lots of debates. Oh, boy, you can get people started on why this is. I mean, in baseball historians, I mean, they've put to get, they've put forward some uh, kind of absurd ideas about it being the quantified pastoral sport, you know. And the, but the, you know, the, the bottom line for me is that baseball was invented at the same time that statistics were flourishing. So the American Statistical Association is created in the 1830s, and baseball is formalized as a sport in the 1840s. And so baseball is created in the age in which statistics are created as the way of knowing you know, rigorously about the world. And so they, they grow up together. And so baseball is a statistical sport, not just because it's easy to count things in baseball, uh, but also because it's created in this moment of a kind of flourishing of statistical knowledge. Oh, nice. I, you know, you, you mentioned the money ball. You've, you know, we could talk about Bill James. You go back to sort of a generation before. But, but you know, when I was reading your, your work, you, you talked about the idea of, of, 
you know, Hen was it Henry Chadwick was a character from the past that this was a name that I had never heard. Can you talk a little bit about why this was a, a person that you would feature and highlight in your in your writing about this? Yeah, so Henry Chadwick is a newspaper reporter from the 19th century. He's an immigrant from England. He starts off uh, thinking about uh, cricket, and then he moves to, to chronicling baseball in, in the New York area, New York, Brooklyn, where a lot of the baseball was being played at that point. And he wants to make the game more manly and scientific, is how he describes it. And the way to do that, he believes, and he's a reporter, and the way he does he does that is he says, I need to collect data and I need to analyze it and report on it. And so he sees his role as a reporter and as a scorer and as a baseball kind of reformer as intertwined. So the way you would do it is you actually collect more data, more reliable data, you aggregate it and you analyze it. And so Henry Chadwick stands as this kind of very early 19th century figure that looks to data to solve all the problems with the game. So you want to know how to change the rules of the game? Well, collect data. You want to know whether players are good? Collect data. And so he's, he's a kind of figure that, that comes across, even in the 1860s, 1870s, very early on for baseball and for what we think of as the data revolution. Uh, but he's really a kind of classic 19th century data head. And uh, his half-brother is actually, interestingly, uh, Edwin Chadwick, who is a public health reformer in England. Uh -huh. And so there's a famous connection that a lot of the public health epidemiological data in England is being collected at the same time as baseball data in America. And they actually write letters where they say, I'm cleaning up the streets of London and you're cleaning up the sports of America. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a direct connection with some of these more commonly known data and epidemiological stories. So just a quick follow-up, you know, now all of a sudden I'm wondering where, you know, we have sabermetrics. Is there, is there a, a cricket equivalent? That's a, that's a great question. So data is collected in cricket. It, it, there is no kind of equivalent use of the expansiveness of the data in baseball and cricket, but cricket is, is the way we kept score in baseball was clearly designed after cricket scorekeeping. And the role of the umpire and the score in cricket was similarly exalted in the 19th century. And so even though the data analysis in baseball goes way beyond a cricket and people, again, historians, boy, you give us an inch, we'll go, we'll go for it. You know, people, have, people have credited this to an idea about the democratic nature of America versus the aristocratic nature. Of I don't know how much I would follow that particular line of thought, but it is certainly true that uh, data uh, and record keeping in cricket was intimately connected to early data and record keeping in baseball. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Carnegie Mellon's Chris Phillips. So you're a, a, a historian of science, and I wonder for the people who are listening, like, uh, you know, like my brother or my, my little nephew listens to the podcast now. John, you'll be thrilled. He's like in sixth grade. I'm probably going to get in trouble because that's probably wrong. But so like <laughs> for, for people who are unaware, what is the history of science? So a lot of people think of science as exactly the thing that doesn't have a history, uh, right? It, it only has a future. Uh, and yeah. what, what historians of science are interested in is treating science as a human creation, albeit a powerful, central, important one, but a human creation just like any other cultural creation, art, politics. Uh, and so we're interested in investigating science with questions of not 
you know, what precisely did so-and-so do on such and such a day, but rather, you know, how, how, how does physics explain the world differently at different points in time? How can very smart people one year disagree with very smart people 10 years later about the essence of the universe? You know, what, what happens? How do scientific theories change? And of course, for us living in 2021, how does science uh, collect this position of authority? You know, where if you want to know about the world, you know, all the good thinking people know about the world scientifically. Well, this is not the way we thought about the world in 1900 or 1800 or 1700. And so uh, part of what historians of science are interested in is this uh, particular place that science has in our current culture and in the culture of the past. You know, Chris, you, you have this reputation of running with a rough crowd. I've, I've heard you even t team teach with statisticians. I mean, I, you know, that could be the end of many rep a reputation. I know that Ro Rosemary feels damaged, as does Richard, in terms oh, of their... Uh, oh, their so much regret. <laughs> <laughs> it could fill a volume. So I, I'd like to follow up a little bit with, you know, you know the course that, that you're, you've been teaching with one of your colleagues at, at CMU. Absolutely. So one of my colleagues, Joel Greenhouse, and I were talking because my current book project is on the history of statistics and medicine. And he's a biostatistician, a statistician uh, who works in epidemiology and, and, and the allied fields of medicine. And so we were talking about the kind of trajectories in, in statistical data in medicine or in health. And one of the things we quickly realized is that we're actually interested in very similar questions. We're interested in questions about how you use data to make reliable inferences. We're interested in questions about what's the context of data? What is the meaning of data? How does that change over time? We're interested in telling convincing narratives using particular sorts of data uh, and uh, what, what data is not that interesting. Uh, and so we realized that actually we could teach a course for undergraduates and actually first year undergraduates that would introduce them to statistics and history, not as these opposed disciplines where one involves books and essays and the other involves, uh, you know, sort of long lectures and problem sets, but rather that, uh, that both of them are, are disciplines that are fundamentally interested in this question about making inferences from data. So I, in my own work, I feel like I straddle like the humanities and the social sciences. I was trained as a social scientist, um, but I increasingly sort of embrace a more humanities, I think, bent in my work. And it's always sort of difficult to navigate those spaces, well, depending on what audience I'm talking to. And I wonder, given that you've been teaching this class now and thinking about these issues, you know, what can we as academics do to try to help tear down that divide a bit because I think it does make it difficult to sort of see the the ways that we are interested in similar questions I, like what is data how do we know data where does it come from like those are questions that you know again a historian and, an, and a statistician are interested in right um, but may not always know that they're interested in the same things because they're not speaking to each other or even sometimes the same language Right. And, and we, we spend a lot of time cloaking what we find in language that ensures nothing but our experts and our fellow experts could ever read it. And so part of it is, is a communication issue. And, and I think one of the ways that we've found around that is by finding concepts that cross over really easily. So alternate explanation is a concept that in statistics, 
you know, if you're trying to make causal claims, alternate explanations are really important, right? You want to think about what would be other explanations for this data, right? Why, why are you believing a particular explanation or a particular account of the data? But for historians, alternate explanations are, are the kind of bread and butter that we operate off of too, because history only runs once. It's an in of one. And so if you want to think about how it might have run differently, you have to think about alternate explanations. And so for, for us, concepts like that, which are, are, they're not formal in many cases. And so you don't have the kind of formalism or the, uh, the, the jargon heavy nature of it, but rather they're concepts that move very easily between fields. And so we try and emphasize those concepts when we're teaching together. And so we can each say, well, what would be an alternate ex explanation? And we can do it from a historical perspective or from a statistics perspective. Yeah, that's, that's that's really fascinating. I mean, I, I love this discussion of the idea of of kind of the 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 fact that there's measurement involved in what we do. We just can't take it as a given, and that's been part of you know that's 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 a common touchstone for many of our discussions. I, I had a a great collaboration many years ago with a Russian historian colleague friend, and you know he was trying to understand sizes of things like gulag populations, and and all you could get were kind of these other ancillary measures that were not direct. And sort of just just thinking through, you know, what does that mean? How does that how would that inform you about this question? That's that's really incredibly core for what you're doing as a historian. So I, I I really find this fascinating. What are what are some of the things that the, that surprises the students the most? Yeah, I'm just curious when when they go was the, all the other classes filled? Did I got stuck with this history and stat guy in a class? You know, or, or you know, so, I mean, but but what are they surprised to hear or surprised to learn in in this class? Yeah, I'm sure some of our students are a little surprised by the class, but we have, we have a pretty robust uh, statistics and data science crowd here at Carnegie Mellon. So usually they're surprised more by the history than they are by the stats part of it. But uh, I, that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm okay to try and find converts. It's always easier for me that way. So the one thing that people tend to be surprised at is how old trying to make sense of data really is. And so people are shocked that data predates computers. And part of this is we do a really bad job of communicating that what computers do in some senses replicates the work that was done before. In some senses, it's different. Uh, and these are complicated historical questions. But you know, we start the class with the bills of mortality uh, from yeah. 17th century London. Now, these are, for historians, these are very you know typical kind of documents you would use but the students look at them and they oh you know these are interesting questions now you can ask you can ask about the distribution of disease you can ask about seasonal differences because they're collected weekly you can ask questions about uh, the difference between say measures of christenings and measures of births and so you can all of a sudden a lot of the the kinds of material that in a stat class you're going to get the latest or you're going to get these classic data sets you know from the last 50 years they're really surprised to see that people in the 1700s or even in the 17th century are really grappling with some of the same questions that that they are today so i think that's one of the most surprising things about it. I think a, another surprising thing is that statistics is not always confirmatory testing, uh, you know, and I think one of the great virtues of the course, excuse me, is that we spend a lot of time exploring data and not necessarily jumping right to 
uh, making assumptions and running tests. And they're so used to, and so many statistics courses, trying to get to these tests, trying to get to a kind of answer that they can give, that the fact that we are not interested and will never be interested in them uh, kind of getting to that answer, I think is really surprising to them. So you've written a book on baseball stats, uh, a book on on the new math, and you mentioned this other project that you are working on um, that seemed like it had an epidemiological connection. How do you, when you're deciding what you're going to work on, choose your path? That's a good question. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't see some of the other stuff like wine tasting, and you know, it's a, it's a you know, on one hand, I, I write what I'm interested in. I think that's that's a safe thing that most uh, historians do. But the when I think of the overarching questions that I'm interested in, one of them is how does a field that defines itself as non-mathematical or non-quantitative become quantitative? And so these are really interesting moments in the history of science when a certain way of knowing about the world changes and all of a sudden conceptions of what counts as rigor, what counts as reliable change. And so historians of science are often interested in these moments when you have a transformation in what counts as reliable or rigorous knowledge. And for me, I think, you know, growing up in the late 19th, uh, early uh, excuse me, late 19th. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? Late 20th and uh, early 21st century. Uh, you know, I think to, to me or thinking about the last six months and the pandemic and data about the pandemic. I mean, we live in a world where data is put forward as the reliable way to know about things. And so for me, I was just interested in these fields that for so long defined themselves as not numerical or as not mathematical. And some of them are fields now that we forget, like experimentation, for instance, was a kind of non-mathematical field for a long time, or, or thinking about uh, literary analysis or archaeology. There's lots of fields where mathematics is now commonplace, but in the past was not. So those are where I kind of hone in on. I, I had an epiphany when I was in, in grad school reading things like Stephen Jay Gould's work. And, and thinking about the construction of what, what we think of as certain concepts, that there's, there's a cultural context in which work is done, and then our own values and perspectives are often layered on that. And, and you know, it's, it's very different to, to think about where, where information comes from than to think mechanically about how you process the, the outcome of such measurement. And I, I really love that, as, as you were describing your course, that, it, that this focus, this emphasis on conceptual th statistical thinking as, as really being sharply in contrast with procedural mechanics and what's really a, sort of an aspiration. That sounds like a, it sounds like a great class. I wish I could take your class. <laughs> We'd love to have you in it sometime. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think the, it, it's exactly right that, that we, we tend as humans in many cases to want to move to something mechanical, something that we can just follow the steps on, right? Something that if we do what we're told to do, we'll get the right answer. And yeah. of course, none of the interesting questions or meaningful questions or important questions are ever answerable in that way. And so one of the kind of great virtues, I think, of having people come from very different disciplinary backgrounds is that we absolutely agree that if it's an important enough question, it's not gonna be able to be answered by running an, an algorithm. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Chris, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Chris. What a great conversation. Oh, my pleasure entirely. 
Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu, or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.